Yeah, absolutely. Um, and mainly if we edit, it's it's deceptive editing. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here in person again is my friend and colleague, Mick Anslicht. Welcome back to Toronto, Mickey. Uh, it's, it's good to be back. I'm back. Uh, that's stopped. Yeah, uh, you should not do that. Um, we have, uh, in, in addition to you in person, we have a special guest today, don't we? We do. And uh, I'm like, like so excited uh, for our next guest because I'm a huge fan of his. Um, our guest is none other than Brent Roberts. Um, and I think many of our listeners will know Brent, uh, because he's got, uh, he's such a prolific researcher, outspoken as well uh, in terms of, uh, open science. Um, but for some of our listeners who aren't, uh, psychologists, uh, I, I guess pretty happy that this, this might be your introduction to him. So, uh, Brent Walter Roberts is a professor of psychology in the Department of uh, Psychology at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Brent received his uh, PhD in 1994 from Berkeley. And I got this big, huge, long list of awards that he's won. He's won lots of them, including uh, the J.S. Tanaka Dissertation Award. Um, uh, he's won, uh, I think, mid-career awards, a number of them uh, from a number of important uh, societies in our field. Uh, he's considered one of the most highly cited uh, scientists uh, in the past couple of years, according to Thomas Reuters. Um, I made the mistake, uh, Brent, I haven't done this before with you. Uh, I made the mistake of going on, onto Brent's Google Scholar page. And if you want to feel bad about yourself or feel like you're lazy or uninfluential, check out Brent's Google Scholar page. It's ridiculous. I won't even bother telling you his age index, 80. Um, he, he's received an honorary doctorate uh, from, the, from the Department of psychology at the University of Basel as well. Um, Brent is a personality psychologist. I think, I think it's fair to say uh, one of the most influential personality psychologists around. Um, he studies uh, the development of personality across time. How does it change from childhood to adulthood? Uh, what lead, and what leads to these changes? Uh, Brent is also interested in the measurement of personality. Um, and how they might predict important life outcomes. He's especially interested in um, one personality trait, uh, the personality trait of conscientiousness. Uh, like I said in the opening, uh, Brent is also outspoken, uh, an outspoken person in terms of open science. Um, I think on Twitter and maybe even on the blogosphere a bit, uh, Brent has a reputation for being critical, sharp-tongued, maybe pessimistic, sometimes bordering on, bordering on nihilism at times. Um, and I'll admit that first, when I first started, you know, kind of rubbing shoulders a bit with Brett, uh, Brent on, uh, on Twitter, I was a bit intimidated, uh, you know, cause he's fucking brilliant, but also, um, because he is so outspoken. But since I myself have been red pilled by the reform movement, I now share some of his nihilism. Um, so anyways, I'm going to, I'm going to, I can go on and on. Uh, I'll say one thing as one last note of introduction. And, and this is this, um, Brent, I think, is a good guy. He's got this kind of angry side as well. And I'm hoping in this podcast, we will see a little bit of David Banner, but also a little bit of the Hulk. So, Brent, welcome to the show. 
<laughs> Thank you for the introduction. Red pilled. I like that. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that you consider yourself red pilled. Um, that is uh, news to me. So, um, I, yes, I I, 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 I describe myself as uh, as having gone rogue uh, just uh, a couple of days ago on email to someone. Welcome to the nihilistic crowd. We we we, we welcome you with open arms. <laughs> We believe in nothing. Nothing. There's no purpose in life. We are just specks of dust. Um. <laughs> right. So, so before Brent makes us all cry, um, <laughs> I do. I, I, um, I want to ask Mickey, how is, how's your return to Toronto been? You, you, um, you're quite a bit more tan than you used to be, um, which must make it awkward for you at the white supremacist meetings. <laughs> <laughs> You have yeah, it, it, it is a bit. It is a bit strange. It's true. Uh, they they look at me uh, sideways. Um, I, you know, it's 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 as much as I enjoyed my time in Bali, uh, and you know, three months, you know, summer in the middle of our you know horrendous winter is uh, wonderful. Wonderful to be exposed to different culture. And um, I listened to this podcast uh, a little while ago that described traveling for extended periods of time, like doing uh, a hallucinogenic drug. In the sense that when you come back, you have a different perspective. Uh, you see the world differently. Um, and uh, I really enjoy that aspect of, of travel. Like, you know, seeing the same place with a new set of eyes a bit. And I've experienced that in the past week. Kind of the old routine seeming new and different, uh, even bizarre at times. So, yeah, it's been good. Cool. Well, um, why don't we do beer chat? So uh, Brent has been nice enough to indulge us in our uh we demanded he he drink beer and uh he's he's playing along so what uh what have you got for us here um i have uh purchased a beer um called blend of darkness imperial stout ale uh it is a white pony microbrewery beer um and i should say it's quite good perfect um and i was in charge of picking out the beers for us um which meant that i went to the metro across the street which now sells beer and picked whatever looked interesting <laughs> based on based on the name um so uh first up uh we have uh flying monkeys brewery which is based in barry ontario and uh this is called uh, live transmission and it's a milkshake ipa what do you think, Mickey? Uh, well, I haven't tried yet. You haven't so tried it? The, uh, okay, let's... Well, I'll just I'm... say, you know, good, good cheers. Uh, welcome to the show, Yes, Brent. that's right. And welcome, welcome to the back show, glasses here. Cheers. Welcome back from Bali. Cheers. Cheers. <sighs> Excellent. Oh, that's good. Um, after, I like it. Yeah, after three months of Pilsners and Lagers, it's nice to have an IPA. <laughs> Sorry, um, nobody was really sympathetic to those complaints you had about not getting a good beer in Bali. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Crimea River, right? I think I have a small violin somewhere around here. Where is it? Where is you it? guys? You guys are both privileged. I just want you to know that, and uh, not you're not you know sympathetic to to my plight at all. Yeah, I know that's what it is. It's a microaggression. Um, so uh, we we have a ton of stuff that we want to um, talk about, and uh, Brent apparently I learned tonight has an extremely early bedtime. Um, so we're just, which is, which is weird. And maybe we can get into that. I don't know, but we, we're going to devote half of the show, um, to sourdough baking. Right. Yes. And, and so, yes. right. So we're, we're going to get the science portion out of the way first, and then that's going to be just nonstop. I could talk for hours about sourdough. There you go. That's, so uh, that's the plan, um, which is what our listeners have been demanding, obviously is like, that's, you know, all our reviews are like, okay, show could use more sourdough talk. More so, bread, please. You're here to, to fill that hole, you know? 
Hey, uh, you know, bread and beer. Uh, bread is solid beer, so that's you should right. Like it exactly. It should, be, should, should be appropriate for the show. Exactly right. Um, yeah. So, so we have a ton of stuff we want to ask you. Um, and the first thing that came up that that we thought you might have interesting opinions on is uh, this blog post that uh, we both saw floating around uh, Twitter the past few days. Um, this is from the blogger uh, Scott Alexander, which I believe is a, a pseudonym, actually. Um, his blog is called uh, Slate Star Codex. And he's a psychiatrist, psychologist, psychiatrist. I'm not sure. He treats patients. Um, and this blog post was about uh, a certain gene. This is the 5-HTTLPR gene. Um, and this is a gene that was implicated, people thought, in um, depression, so uh, among other um, psychiatric disorders. So this gene, it's thought, has something to do with serotonin transport. And there was a, a groundbreaking paper that came out um, somewhere in the mid-90s that purported uh, to link depression to a certain variant um, of this gene. And then since that time, sort of like a large body of work um, looking at main effects um, of this gene when those main effects seem to be a little unreliable, looking at moderators. So for example, um, does having a specific variant of this gene interact with environmental stressors to predict depression? And really like a, a very kind of large literature emerged linking this gene to lots of things. Um, and then it turns out, according to a, a recent paper by Border et al. in the Amer American Journal of Psychiatry, um, that this is all kind of bunk. Um, so the title of the paper is No Support for Historical Candidate Gene or Candidate Gene by Interaction Hypotheses for Major Depression Across Multiple Large Samples. So their total N was something like 600,000 plus individuals. Um, so... On the one hand, you might say, like, well, this is normal scientific progress. Um, we thought a thing. It turns out that with further refinement of our methods, um, that, that thing that we thought was wrong, and this is how science works. Um, now, what I find sort of troubling about this whole story is that according to this Border et al. paper, these effects of single genes on something like depression, if they do exist, are so small that you evidently need an N of hundreds of thousands in, in order to reliably detect any effect. And yet the literature that this paper is calling into question was based on studies where the median N was something like 350, right? So, so it's not, to me, it doesn't seem like it's like, oh, you know, we got something wrong and now we know better. It's that somehow our methods allowed us to find lots of things when that should have been totally impossible, right? Given the sample sizes of the studies, it just shouldn't have been possible to detect anything. And yet here people were detecting lots of stuff. So it's almost like a perfect um, control condition in the sense of like, well, even if there were something there, um, there just shouldn't have been any, any way of finding it. And yet there were lots of things found now. Um, you know, Brent, you know a lot more about um, genetics than either of us do. So I wonder, like, first of all, like, what's your reaction to this paper, this blog post? And you can can you put this into sort of a broader context for us in terms of what it means for um, perhaps other behavioral genetics findings? Oh, it's a it's a beautiful paper. Um, and it, the the whole story, which is captured so well by Scott Alexander, um, has all of the 
participants, players, than the drama that we've seen played out over the last decade with the reproducibility movement. Um, but it's more almost games of throny. So I, I'm actually much more familiar with this type of research when it comes to reproducibility and pay more attention to this than I do, for example, social psychology or personality psychology. Um, because this was, for me, actually, a source of a number of years of rather uh, robust funding from the federal government of the United States. Um, because I was quite conscious of the whole idea that something like 5-HETLPR was important for depression, but more uh, theoretically um, appropriate was something that would be moderated by experience. So this is, of course, the idea that was popularized by Caspi in the 2000, uh, early 2000s. Um, and and it, for me, it played a, a really big role in a lot of different things that I've, I've done, none of which have actually ever been published. And so uh, I like to joke that uh, currently in my lab, I have a freezer full of spit um, because during the early aughts, I was collecting saliva from a lot of different people. I don't necessarily recommend this. It's difficult, especially for older individuals, to get the volume of saliva that's necessary. Um, I don't think the IRBs actually consider that. And we were in the process of figuring out how to genotype our participants when basically all of this went down. It went down for people who were familiar with the research probably 2007 through 2010. So in many respects, this finding that is proposed or at least pr produced in this paper is an old finding. If you were in the, the mix of examining candidate genes or G by E findings, you kind of knew this already. This is a definitive study. It's very, very analogous to the ego depletion uh, triple R's or the paper that has yet to come out. Um, so, I mean, in, in terms of a drama, you have everything here. So you have the highest status you know, psychologists on the planet producing science that says, you know, something that uh, many evolutionary biologists believe, which is that the genome is a dynamic thing. It, it responds to environments. And so these polymorphisms are not just simple codes for what you're going to be. It, they depend on, and, and I think there's very, very good evidence for this for, from the non-human animal literature, that you, you need a context, you need an environment for these things to, to act. They're just little proteins waiting to be triggered, and it is uh, inappropriate to think of them as gene for something. Um, so it, the evolutionary biologist is like, this is great. This is exactly what we would think. The problem was it was all untrue. And, and even more poignant is the fact that the biologists actually knew this well before we ever got into the entire enterprise. So going all the way back to Fisher, who did a, not, a lot of really nice work on the, the potential genetic models underlying complex phenotypes, like anything a psychologist would study, uh, put forward the proof, essentially, that those phenotypes would have to, by definition, be caused by lots and lots of different polymorphisms, not just one, not just two, but potentially thousands and thousands. And, and the geneticists and the biologists who study in that field knew that. And they knew that well before we ever did candidate gene research. They knew that well before we ever did GWASH. They knew that well before we did G by E studies. And they told us that, and we ignored them. And why do we ignore them? Because we want to be real scientists. And to be a real scientist, you have to do a number of different things. The most prominent ones in the past two decades are do things in the brain, 
through fMRI or do things with genetics. And so this was, of course, codified by the director of NIMH and NIH, who said, basically, if you're going to be doing anything in human science in a way that's going to help or promote you know, something translational, you're going to have to either yank genes from people or put them in a magnet and figure out whether their brain glows in the appropriate way, right? And so, and being psychologists and being insecure about who we are and what we do, we said, sure. And I said the same thing. I said, okay, you know, my one of my good friends, colleagues, one of my um, my you know heroes in some respects, Ashlyn Caspi, had found this interaction effect. And I said, I'm going to go out doing this. And so I started longitudinal studies where we collected genetic material in the effort to tease apart whether there are GYE effects for things like COMPT or 5-HTLPR and a number of other, well, they call usual suspects. Halfway through that project, we discovered that none of it was true, <laughs> and and it was somewhat painful to um, figure that out. We continued doing good research, but nothing with genetics because there's absolutely no science to be had with samples less than 10,000 to 100,000, depending upon what you do. So do you think that kind of earlier experience primed you to, to be aware of the same thing in social and personality psych, right? Because you said 2010 at that point already, you had this realization of like, whoa, all of this stuff that's been found, it can't be right just because the methods can't do that. Do you think that kind of like converted you earlier on than most psychologists? No, no, I don't think that was uh, critical for my transition, uh, at least in relationship to our field, for example. I mean, for me, it was really the 2011 papers. Bem's paper was was the most salient for me. I mean, you, you could not avoid <laughs> the, the huge 800-pound gorilla in the room when you read his paper, and then you go to the paper right before it in JPSP, or in the paper right after it, just, you just change the topics, right? You change the IV and the DV, the methods are exactly the same. And it's like, oh, oh, you know, if we can produce evidence for ESP using standard operating procedures, holy cow, you know, that means that means potentially nothing we're doing is right. <laughs> and it was, and for me, that was, you know, combined with, of course, Simon's paper, you know, the two of those for me were a double whammy, combined with the fact that I, I'd been teaching, you know, methods for a long time. It was my job, right? Being a personality psychologist, you don't get a job as a personality psychologist because nobody wants to hire a personality psychologist. So you have to get a job as something else, plus. And so my job was always, oh, you can teach methods. Cool, we'll make you do that. And so I, I, I was teaching methods from the first year I ever taught back in 94. And fortunately was gifted a class by a clinical psychologist who was really quite good. And you know, lo and behold, you learned the basic ground rules. But I had not assumed up until 2010, 2011, that my colleagues had been bullshitting me as hard as they were. I kind of knew there was kind of sketchy things because I had already done stuff where I had tried and failed to replicate some of my favorite findings. My favorite finding was Jack Block's putative uh, evidence that if you were a recreational drug user, you were more psychologically well-adjusted. Um, and I, you know, kind of innocently told my first graduate student, uh, say, let's, let's, you know, do some research in that area. That sounds like fun. You're interested in personality and drug use. And lo and behold, we couldn't find any evidence for it. And even, and that was like 2003, 2004, where I got into a conversation with Jack Block about the fact that what he we had done were conceptual replications and therefore they didn't count. <laughs> and so and that was, you know, 10 years before we got into a big battle about conceptual but replications. But I mean, to hit back Yoel's point, I mean, it seems like I mean, you're having this conversation or you're thinking about these issues uh, 10 years before, I think, most of us. I mean, certainly 10 
plus years before I was. Um, because maybe you were trying to replicate some stuff. You were, uh, and unlike I think what many of us did, um, you know, I would blame myself when something wouldn't work. Oh, I fucked up. I just, you know, I'm not good enough or, right, you know, right. I, I don't have the right ingredients. And I think at some point you yeah. were like, no, I think there's something, there might be something deeper here. Well, no, I mean, even back then. So even, well, even back then. So I, I always tell the story about, you know, I mean, I'm teaching everybody's students methods, right? And 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 I had a really good class that had, had really done, and again, it was gifted to me, so it's not my brilliance at this at all, or, or even my training. My training at Berkeley sucked when it came to methods. Um, they taught me baby stats, and that was pretty much it. Everything else I had to find out on my own. When it came to methods, it was this class that taught me the basic validities, internal, external, uh, construct, um, and the like. And and so, and then I was teaching this to students, and I and I'd see these students, you know, get up in brown bag and give a talk. And it's like, yeah, day, week in after week out, somebody would stand up there, give a bar graph with no error bars, and say our p value is p o six, and and the n is you know fifteen twenty per cell. And I'd go up afterwards and say, you know, you know. I, I taught you about power and you know that all you have to do, I mean, just, you know, double the sample size, right? Why do you, why do you folks do use larger sample size? I'm teaching you to use larger sample size. Why do you do that? And they would cock their head and look at me and squint <laughs> and kind of nod. And then next time they give a talk, 15 or 20 per sample size. And, and I'd be like, Jesus, these people aren't listening to me, but you know, that's not nothing. <laughs> that was nothing new. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'll keep on teaching their, their students and this is a way to work. And I had no, I had no idea of the kind of very anxious and um, problematic churning through studies that was basically going on in the labs of many of my colleagues. And I really didn't get a sense for it until I had postdocs who came out of that field. And, and it sounds horrible, right? I mean, just like you're cranking away for years, desperately trying to find what I like to call p-values of unusual size. And, and you know, you think you suck because you're not getting it in this person next to you, you know, hit on two or three. That's just amazing. The, the lab manager, the PI saying, oh, you know, Ted over here, he's got the special sauce. You don't. And God, that's such a psychological vice. That's just horrible. I had no clue that was going on. I really didn't. I mean, you kind of see some of the fallout. You'd see people wash out of programs, say, you know, research isn't for me. I think I'm just going to go over here and do some teaching. You go, okay, you know, I'll support you to write you a letter, try to get you a job. That, I didn't I didn't have any sense for the fact that that was going on. And when, when I finally realized it around 2011 and 12, I was like, oh, man. I felt very sorry for those folks. So um, I, I guess we have uh, some questions that we'd like to ask you about um, the kind of more mainstream personality psychs type stuff that you do. Okay. So we'll, you know, we'll do something really, really basic. I think for m most of our listeners, this is too basic. But for some of our non-psychologist listeners, um, this might be interesting. Uh, so, you know. First of all, you know, you, you're a personality psychologist. You all and I both uh, define ourselves as social psychologists. Uh, and we're allied in, in, in some ways. And many of our conferences are together, but we're different as well. So a really basic question is, you know, what is personality? And I ask this because um, I don't think anymore, at least not, not, not in the milieu we're in. But I think for a while there, there was a notion that personality is a figment. It's not real. Um, you, know, we're, you know, you're free to be whatever you want to be. Um, and there's nothing really stable here. So what is a person? What is personality? Yeah. Whenever somebody says stuff like that, I ask them whether they're married or whether they have coworkers and what their brothers and sisters are like. Cause <laughs> it's like to, to adopt a position like that is so funny. Um, and, and because of course it requires that you divorce yourself from reality. Not that I want to have anecdote as my basis for a science 
grades, but it's like, are you are you serious? Um, I I often say that you know academics are the only group that's privileged to come up with stupid ideas because they're sitting in a room, usually in front of their computer, and not talking to people. <laughs> if you talk to people, yeah, you know, one of your main frustrations is your supervisor and your coworker or your spouse and the fact that they don't change. And it's like, you know, if that's true, then there probably is something like personality um, and this wonderful uh, ephemeral. I, I also like to joke, if you really, really believe that that's the way the world works, have kids and make sure they don't grow past the age of three or four, um, because kids, by definition, are inconsistent. Think about that for a little bit and how much you love that stage. You know, it's just like your life is completely unpredictable. Moment to moment is unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what they're going to do. And that's what you're saying the world is like right now if you say there's no such thing as personality. That seems I called that period with my kids the jungle. The jungle, the, yes. The first like, four years I was in the jungle. It was you're horrible. just holding these kids who are screaming and doing things. And you're trying your best to try to figure out what's going on. And then five minutes later, they're cuddling in your arms. They're happy as clams. And then two minutes after that, they're screaming again. Yeah, sure. If you like to have that vision of the world, that's fine. I get the sense that that's not the way things work. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that's good evidence for, to the contrary that personality doesn't exist. But you know, per- well, so a, a subtle version of, of this kind of, you know, silly question I asked, although it amazes me that some people actually have thought this in the past, um, is that personality doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, really what matters yeah. is the situation. And yeah. uh, you're driven so much by the situation. Personality is, right. is really minor, minor uh, leagues. And to be honest with you, I started my career under that same assumption. I, mean, I, I was proud of of uh, belonging to a field that was the least popular. I like that idea. Um, it's really disturbing that it's actually gaining in popularity. Um, I really you know, accepted the fact that the reason why I was studying personality was because it was interesting, not because it was practical. That has changed dramatically in the last uh, few decades. So, and and you know, my my draw to personality was at least my observation, and I think most people share this: that each of us is a surprisingly unique individual, right? And you know, we, we have distinctiveness that isn't characterized easily by situations. We all enter the same field or the same career, and yet we're still dramatically different from one another. Why is that? Where does that come from? How do you characterize those differences and organize them in a way that's telling and informative to the people who are actually consuming what you do and, and what you're doing as a scientist? That for me was you know, why personality psychology was a draw and what it was that was, let's say, so compelling about the field. And that's what you study as a personality psychologist. And so I'd, you could you know, throw out wonderful definitions like the enduring, relatively enduring thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, which I don't really care for as a definition, um, but that's one that people often invoke. I mean, because I, I really do believe that personality psychologists are responsible for the broad sweep of you know, distinct categories of individual differences. Like we should be experts on cognitive functioning and cognitive ability, because that's, if, at least in terms of, of U.S. society, that's how we stratify the whole damn society. I mean, you if you, if you ignore that, you ignore one of the most important features of our community and our society and what individuals do with each other. And so I think a personality psychologist should know about that. You should know about personality traits in the big five. You should know about motivations. You should know about narratives, life stories, and the way people put their, their narrative together. So in my mind, the personality psychologist is responsible for understanding the different domains of individual differences, understanding both their continuity and their changeability. So they should be able to address that question. Is it true that people are acting willingly from situation to situation? Is it true that something like a motivation is far less consistent than a personality trait? That's in many respects, the responsibility you have as a personality psychologist is to understand those, those issues. 
So I'm going to ask you something um, somewhat self-serving. So I imagine it's probably, you've probably never been on a dating app, huh? Like <laughs> I'm old. So no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Swipe so, right. So, right. Uh, so uh, if, uh, if you go on a dating app, uh, at least in Toronto, you'll notice that a lot of people put their Myers-Briggs type yeah. like in their profile. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. and, it's it's astoundingly popular and so i'm curious like what do you think like why is the myers briggs in particular so popular and can you do you have any intuition about the the appeal of this idea of a type which is something that people really seem to love like why does that seem so appealing to people so i mean the the myers briggs is the big 5 minus neuroticism right and 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 take also the negativity out of the other domains and so it's extroversion with positive introversion. So introversion isn't you know, being shy and being anxious in social situations. It's being quiet and being you know, centered in yourself. It's not agreeableness versus anger or aggression. It's agreeableness versus you know, being fine, being independent with others. It's not conscientiousness and irresponsibility. It's uh, spontaneity versus you know, being organized. And, and so you, you take all of the negativity out of the big five, you have a tremendously positive thing, right? And we I, we used to do consulting with companies back in Tulsa where we'd give them a different personality tests. And man, to a, to a company, they come back to us and say, we love this MBTI thing, but you know this big five measure sucks. I mean, it's just, it's all so negative. And you're like, well, yes, but it's also true. Um, and so the, you know, the MBTI is a brilliantly constructed and marketed tool um, that is, really, really quite profoundly overlapping with the big five with all of the negative aspects of the big five expunged. Um, and so it's really appealing to people because you don't have to confess to anything negative. Everything that could be potentially negative is uh, transmogrified into something that is appealing, right? I'm not I'm surprised at how positive you're actually being about the MBTI. So you're essentially saying it overlaps largely with the big five, but doesn't, I mean, in terms of a measurement tool itself, it's, it's quite problematic, no? No, it's fine. I mean, people, they're, everybody who's out there complaining about the MBTI and saying, oh, it doesn't do anything, they're posers. They're trying to get in, intellectual cred in groups that will say, oh, you're a real scientist because you're saying this thing doesn't have any you know, validity whatsoever. They're wrong. And, if you, and there's literature out there that already shows it. Like if you correlate the MBTI with, with a big five measure, you get really robust correlations. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're not inconsequential, 0.4s, 0.5s. And so you're not measuring something different. I mean, the, the, the real burden is the fact that almost doesn't matter what you measure, you're going to get some part of the big five. Um, and so the MBTI is not different. Right. It, you are asking 150, 200 self-report questions about general tendencies overlaps pretty significantly with the big five. Yeah. So it's not, you know, completely perverse. It's not completely invalid. Now, how they package it and the types part. Yeah, that stuff's invalid. But does that invalidate the whole entire enterprise? No, of course not. Yeah, it's like any other. Just take any other method you guys use. Let's say take you know need for cognition, and you just decide. Well, in the way you're going to market need for cognition, you're going to dichotomize it, and just so simplify the communication and the marketing to people. There are high need for cognition and low need for cognition. You're cognitive types. You're non-cognitive types, right? And then you, are, you articulate a complete you know model around that that kind of conversation and people go, oh, okay, yeah. And because we, I mean, you know, I think it is one of those true, true features of human nature that people 
like to, they're miserly with their energy and they want to make things simple. One of the easiest ways we can make things simple is to dichotomize our thinking into categories. And MBTI takes advantage of that and says, okay, there's not this dimension of extroversion. There's just two types, which is of course patently false. Um, there's absolutely no uh, validity for that. There's never been any support for it in any study I've ever seen that there are dichotomies within the d continuous dimensions of anything in personality psychology or even psychopathology for that matter. But you know, from a marketing perspective, yeah, have you guys never dichotomized a continuous measure? Oh uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I have. I, mean, I use that every from. day. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I mean, yeah. if if you've done that as a scientist in, a, in an attempt to, for example, communicate more effectively in a figure or a graph, you're doing the same thing that the the publisher from the, the MBTI is doing. They're taking continuous measures of the big five, expunges of negativity, and dichotomizing it to to simplify the communication for it. How could you not like that? Right. Yeah. So the, I, I was struck definitely by the positivity aspect. Like I, I actually went on a date with somebody and she, we were like talking about the types or whatever. And she's like, uh, what is it? Judging versus perceiving. Right. Yeah, and she's yeah. like, oh, I got P type. I was like, you realize that's just low conscientiousness. <laughs> she's like, what? No, no. I'm a perceiver. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not irresponsible. I'm spontaneous. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Living. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So. Right. 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 Yeah. And she was, yeah, it, it was it was kind of remarkable, right? Because like it's so appealing to. Obviously, you don't want to be told you're not conscientious. Exactly. Like everybody hates that. So yeah. I, I mean, I, one of my pet theories was disproved in the slot. We're trying to revise our conscientious measure, which we'll get to, I suspect. But one of the things I really wanted to be true was that people who are low on the negative qualities have a way of transmogrifying their position into something positive. So I always tell the story about uh, Lance Armstrong, the wonderful, infamous bicyclist who was renowned for being, let's say, uh, less than friendly in the peloton and so and somebody could you know confront him and said hey oh it's been reported that you're kind of an asshole so what do you say about that he goes well you know i've got a strong personality and people have to get used to that <laughs> and for me i just love that right you know this guy is just an ass and he treats people poorly all the way through but he's got it reconfigured in his brain as oh i have a strong personality and i really wanted it to be true that we could find items on the low end of all these things it didn't work so i've got one question which i think is an important question that we need to, to, to address some of the other questions, which is a core, I think, uh, core question that you ask in your research, which is about personality change over time. Um, the simple question is, do we change over time? Uh, if so, by how much? Uh, yeah. Present company, present company accepted, not as much as we should. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I made a whole career. I mean, to, to be to be honest with you, I, I not only made a whole career out, out of that idea, but the reason why I got the job at Illinois and why I've had the successful career I've had is because I was palatal palatable to people who didn't want to believe in personality because to the stereotype was that personality means it's fixed and unchanging. Suddenly there's this Roberts character cruising around saying, Hey, you know what? They do change. And I was like, Ooh, we could have him around. He's okay. <laughs> and so, I mean, uh, you know, not to be too cynical about it, but if it wasn't for that position, you know, I wouldn't be sitting in front of you um, because I said things that were acceptable to a wider sweep of psychologists uh, who, and, and that position is utterly ignorant <laughs> and it has absolutely no, no basis in data or, in the empirical research that's been done. If you, if you look at the empirical research that was conducted over the last hundred years, back in the 60s, we knew personality changed. We had whole books on how personality changes, why it changes, and what you should do to try to change it. It was a weird you know, anomaly of history that we arrived at a, an extreme position in the 1980s and 90s that said personality is fixed like plaster and it doesn't change whatsoever. And that became a very convenient 
idea, both for people who are proponents of, for personality psychology and for people who didn't like it. I mean, there are a tremendous number of people who define themselves in opposition to that idea. I'm not a personality psychologist because I study life narratives or life stories or I study motives or well, we can talk about this later. I use the self-control scale created by two social psychologists. Therefore, I'm not studying a trait. I'm studying something different. Or I study grit, you know, and because it came out of educational and positive psychology, it's not a personality trait, which is, of course, patently false. And so we have these you know, whole fields defined by their opposition to the idea that there's something quote unquote fixed. And of course, if you ever bothered to look at personality traits in all their glory, they were never fixed. They were never that consistent. The data was there from the beginning. There were people interpreting the data inappropriately by saying that a 0.6 correlation was you know, effectively fixed, um, but that, you know, that, that was easily refuted at the time. So you have a reality, which is the data, then you have all of our wonderful little dramas in terms of our tribes and our guilds playing out around that. And there's a tremendous desire and the part of many people to have the world simplified by the idea that personality and personality traits in particular are very consistent and relatively unchanging. And I, and I can say after living too many years that it probably doesn't change enough for many of us, for some of the people that are around us, <laughs> some of our coworkers and our kids and our spouses, you know, we'd like them to change more and they'd like us to change more. Um, but it is the fact when you look at longitudinal studies that personality traits continue to develop throughout adulthood. They change on the, you know on the scale that we would, let's say, would think is large. So we just did a study a couple of years ago where we looked at 50-year stability and change effects on personality traits. And the changes were remarkable. You had a, over a one standard deviation increase on conscientiousness. You know, and I was really surprised by that. We had estimated it from other studies that it was possible, but there's an actual study that tracked people for 50 years. You look at it and they're changing as much as we thought they would, if not more. Is that enough for you and I to say we're going to be better people next week? Probably not. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that when we're talking again in 20 years, we'll be slightly different people. Yeah, yeah, it does. And that's remarkable. One standard deviation. So is that the largest you had, largest change uh, you, you saw in the study or was it? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, in the conscientious domain, that was the largest effect we saw. But you see one standard deviation changes in other domains. Neuroticism, for example, goes down by a full standard deviation from adolescence through age 30 or 40. Um, and, you know, which is great, right? You know, especially when you talk to young people, it's like, look, I know you're nervous now, but <laughs> there's hope for you nonetheless that might actually get better with time. You know, people do get nicer with time. It's, it's actually not a bad thing. I mean, there's some, you know, negative uh, changes. The openness, you know, tend to decrease. Um, or openness scores tend to decrease with time. So, you know, you might think that openness is the, the best possible thing. If, you, if that's true, then you might be disappointed. Um, but the, the changes are there. Um, they're not dramatic in the period of a decade. You're talking a quarter standard deviation, but cumulative over the life course, you, you tend to get a relatively large effect size by our standards. Uh, yeah. So conscientiousness is, has come up like a, a couple times. And I've just like, you know, I was chatting about this with a, with a colleague, uh, Becca Neal. I don't know if you know her, uh, but she comes out of sort of an EvPsych program of Arizona. We're talking about this trait, which seems so much like in the way that it's uh, that we think about it now is like so specific to like modern life where it's like you have to sit still in school. You have to pay attention to things that are boring, right? You have to show up to your boring job. You have to pay your dumb taxes. All of this is like, you know, conscientiousness. And it's like, 
Well, where does that come from? Like as a trait, like if you imagine like our hunter gatherer ancestors running around, what does a more versus less conscientious hunter gatherer look like? Like I just had real trouble like coming up with like, well, what's the kind of adaptive basis of any of this? And I'm sure this is something you've thought about. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You want to, you want me to do evolutionary storytelling after a beer? I like this. Yes, um, please. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the way I like to talk about these things, and it's not uh, necessarily true for conscientiousness, is, and I don't have this well articulated, but, you know, the argument you make for something like neuroticism is that the physiological systems underlying, for example, our feelings of anxiety, which is at the core of neuroticism, exist in fish. Fish predated us by how many millions of millennia to, you know, in terms of evolution, and evolution had created a system you know built around the same neurotransmitters that we talked about in terms of of the gene work but you know the real you know, real uh, neurotransmitters that have an effect on fish to make them either bold or be or scared and it's the same system that's conserved across species into humans so we have robust evidence from a number of different lines of research that the individual differences that exist in humans predate humans by a large margin. And if you talk to the evolutionary psych folks, you know, they're like, yeah, of course, you know, evolution is very, very conservative. It does not recreate the system. You know, it uses the same system. Even if you develop something independent in another part of the globe, like eyes, independent of another species in another place, it uses the same part of the genome to do that. It's a toolkit that, that's used to do it. In terms of conscientiousness, there aren't as many stories. Um, there is a recent paper that I was um, a reviewer on that made the argument that there are many examples of this in animals. You know, certain types of dogs, um, certain types of you know, horses, for example. Lobsters. Uh, lo no lobsters on this story. <laughs> nope, we're not doing lobsters. Um, and you know, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty good argument. If uh, Franz de Waal has a really nice book. I'm talking about uh, examples of non-human animals having foresight, having planning capacity, right? He tells a, a really cool story about a camel that basically sought revenge <laughs> on on a you know, human that had treated uh, them poorly. And so that requires long-term memory and planning, right? And, and if you look at the measurement models of conscientiousness, what seems to be the cohering quality that all of the different facets of conscientiousness shares is that planfulness aspect, that ability to see into the future and say, okay, I'd really like to eat this cake now, but I'm not going to, or I'd really like to haul off and punch this person, but I'm not going to, because the consequences in the future will be far greater than the, what they are now. And so when you get back to your hunters and gatherers, it's probably a harder story, but if you, you know, dig into some of that literature, the knowledge base required to be a successful hunter and gatherer in any environment is profound, right? It's, it's encyclopedic and you develop it over time with persistence from season to season. And so if you understand that, you know, in spring at a certain time when certain types of plants are starting to bloom, certain animals are available in a certain part of your area, that's really critical to your survival, right? And if you're this one who can go out and actually hunt that creature down, bring it back to your group, and they survive because of that, that's where you could make up your wonderful evolutionary stories. It's easier, I think, when you get to agrarian societies where you're, you're at the whims of the seasons and you're trying to plant plants and you have to plan much more in advance than you would otherwise and save things and store food and, and you know create systems that can support your, your survival. Like You could see it easier 
in the last 10 to 15,000 years developing in those types of societies. But for the most part, it seems like there are evolutionary stories to be told <laughs> that even something like conscientiousness existed well before our modern society. Yeah. I, I, when you describe it that way, it sounds so close to just cognitive ability. Well, I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, and this is something that you'll uh, that um, Mickey and I will talk about at some point, but uh, you could think about cognitive ability and conscientiousness being two forms of self-control, right? It's your ability to, to read the, the existing stimuli, understand what's going on and plan accordingly. You know, the, the intelligence aspect or cognitive ability aspect really requires that you differentiate information in a more efficient way. The conscientiousness aspect says that you remember things and you, you inhibit the impulse in order to achieve something beyond. It doesn't require being intelligent. It just says, don't haul off and do something stupid now. And so you could really see them as two aspects of, of what people call self-control. Um, but it might actually be two distinct things. So I, re I really resonate with that idea that both of those are important. Yeah. So I think we should get into this, this idea of self-control um, and its relation to lots of things that, that people seem to talk about as, as being separate, but that seem to me to, as an outsider to this, to have a lot of overlap. Um, I see Mickey is out of beer. Uh -huh. um, so <laughs> I got to say, by the way, what you just said, Brent, was so cool. I was just listening. I mean, I, I feel I've learned a lot just that, that I'm so glad you asked that question. You are. That was, I, that was beautiful, but I'm so thirsty and I want more beer. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. The easiest way is probably on Twitter, where we are at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. If you're more of an email type of person, you can email us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That will go to both of us. If you'd like to check out our website, including our back episode catalog, that is, as always, fourbeers.fireside.fm. There's also a contact form there in case, for whatever reason, you'd like to get in touch with us that way. Um, one last note, uh, if you like the podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, please. It helps other people discover the show. And that is it for promos. Now, Mickey, I'm told by you five minutes ago uh, that you brought back something from Bali for me. Is that, is that right? I, I did, you know, uh, because I did miss you, Yoel. I mean, it, it's true. I, I did miss you, and I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm about to give you. Oh, boy. Um but I did miss you. Uh, and, you know, often I come here, you know, bottles of beer, and I don't always know where the bottle opener is. Yeah. Um, so I bought you a, a bottle opener. Um, oh, wow. Uh, that is, that, that looks a bit like a dick. <laughs> wow. It is, is a that? realistically, it's a, it's a, it's a realistically oh, carved wow. wooden penis. That's impressive. Um, and yeah, it's, it, 
Uh, and yeah. it's a very, yeah, it's a craftsmanship on this is really, it's nice. Accor- it's got according the, according uh, to my sexual harassment training, you would not be able to use that roof here <laughs> at this a party where, yeah, let's say your colleagues right. come over. That would be so. I, you know, I know this seems like an odd thing. Like, I, I went to some specialty place to find this for you. I did not. They sell these every, <laughs> literally in every shop in Bali. You can find like a pack of dicks, like for real. No joke. Um, yeah, uh, 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 and and uh, you, so I think it is uh, uh, some subversion of a of a of a of a, of a religious uh, symbol. Um, I don't think it's uh, purely uh, for tourists, um, but clearly now they're selling it for tourists. It's it's even got the pee hole in the front here. Yeah, I hope you yeah. use it in good health. I <laughs> thank you. I have too few penis shaped but also useful objects in my life so so thank you mickey thank you for thinking of me i missed you too i i did not get you a dick and i apologize for that you should really feel ashamed yeah yeah okay um so uh let's uh let's do a quick uh what are we drinking now so i'm actually not on my second beer yet but mickey is um and uh this is uh this beer is called Naughty Neighbor, which is the reason, obviously, that I bought it. It's an American-style pale ale from Nickelbrook Brewing Company of Burlington, Ontario. And it's got a little sexy lady here, and she's saying, hello, neighbor. I, I, I You know, I've shied away from this uh, brewer because their name is too close to Nickelback. <laughs> yeah, one of Canada's worst <laughs> exports. Um, <laughs> Just because it's associated with Nickelback doesn't mean you should not I like know. it. But they're both Canadian. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, let, well, let's see how it tastes. Uh, that's actually pretty good. All right. That is faint praise, ladies Very and gentlemen. Faint. And uh, Brett, have you changed things up at all? What are you, what are you drinking? Um, so I, I poured uh, myself a whiskey barrel stout um, from Boulevard. Um, which I know is not uh, fancy or anything, but I, I do like the stouts and I do like whiskey. I also have a whiskey just in case. Um, Old Forester, to be exact. I also have a whiskey and I think I'm going to drink most of this in one or two goes. <laughs> that's, that's rum, but yes, you should that just is chug rum, it. But I, I, I prefer yeah. to, to sip what do you my... What do you think? Actually, this wasn't whiskey it's at all, rum. was it? No, <laughs> it was I, I kept telling you it's rum. <laughs> By the way, that's rum. <laughs> right. Definitely. How was it? Did you enjoy it? It was good. I think my graduate student, Jordan Phelps, um, left that uh, in my apartment at one point. So in case you're listening, thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you. So one thing that struck me, um, as someone who's been doing this, I mean, not that long, uh, you know, in the, in, in the grand scheme of things in terms of a career, but I've been studying self-control for 10 to 15 years. And to be honest, it's only myself uh, – that I made the connection between, you know, self-control and conscientiousness in the past five years, let's say. I didn't read about conscientiousness from studying Baumeister um, or some of the other big names in social psychology. But it's so fucking obvious that these two things are related that they might even be the same thing. Um, so to, how how is this possible that, that I have not, you know, other than me being stupid, that's, you know, a clear possibility. Uh, how, why is it taking me so long to figure this out? <laughs> um, because we're not, you know, we're, we're not incentivized to reach out intellectually to, to other areas. You know, so it, I, I, you know, I don't read self and identity, for example, the journal, 
Um, and that's exactly where a lot of Roy, uh, Roy's early work and, and Tangney's work and other people's work that was in this domain, I think that's where the scale was originally published, right? The self-control scale. And it's, you know, if, uh, my impression of the self and identity group, it is the group that says we measure the same things as the big five, but we don't call it the big five um, because it's unpalatable to say that we're studying something that doesn't change. And so the, you know, the intimation of the, the publication being in self and identity is that you're, it's okay to measure this and okay to study it because it's not personality. Now, the irony from a you know a nerdy psychometrician perspective is that if you look at the items, you know, when you're bored sometime in the next few days, line up the ISYNC impulsivity scale. So it's old school measurement, right? We go way, way back. And man, you got to believe either they looked at those items or were like randomly and serendipitously inspired <laughs> to rewrite items that look exactly like Isaac's impulsivity scale. And, you know, if you if you invoke Isaac, oh, my God, you're you're invoking, you know, a whole bunch of negative things. Right. He is the king of the fixed you know, personality trait that causes bad things to happen to people. And his impulsivity scale is a uh, you know, paragon of that. Well, your self-control scale looks exactly like it. Correlates 0.7, I think, with the one study we did when we bothered to measure both of those. And and when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's fascinating. That's the same thing as as Ising's impulsivity. That's cool. <laughs> you know, it's, an, it's it's you know, I was actually kind of mollified by the the fact that it it was so similar because then I knew it was going to work and it was going to actually you know result in something I think substantial. You know, obviously you know the story that the you know, the awkward thing, especially for people like me. So, I mean, I, I, I did my share of Baumeister studies, you know, I did those manipulations and at the same time I was measuring self-control and one of the most salient things in that early stage of the ego depletion work was the zero correlation between the manipulations and the experiment and the self-report measure. And you're like, what the heck's going on? You know, because the measure's good. It It's not unreasonable. And it should work. And, you know, they weren't predicting anything alike. And, you know, that was one of those, well, you know, there are lots of things like that, like going historically, you know, if you go back in personality psychology, we have the schism between the projective test people, the TAT people and the self-report people and McClelland and Atkinson and those guys who were saying, oh, you can never trust these self-reports. They don't mean anything. And look, my projective test, which does predict things, correlates zero with your, your self-report measure. And so we had very similar kinds of uh, problems, issues, conundrums um, in the future before that came along. So it was kind of tolerable in the sense that, okay, I'm used to a zero correlation between those types of uh, different paradigms, but that one seemed to me to be really poignant. It's like, okay, you've got a manipulation that seems to work, which we now know doesn't, um, and a self-report scale that seems to be really good, at least in terms of content domain. Um, but, you know, a lot of people using it under the impression that it was somehow because it was published in a certain place and by certain authors, not the same as these other domains. And and something I didn't say you know, in, in the earlier comments about the stability and change of personality, one of the things we're doing now and, and doing more of is we're bothering to measure the things that are supposed to be changeable, like all the social cognitive constructs, like need for cognition, like you know interest in something. And man, when you do that, you find out that everything is stable and everything is changeable. And this idea that because something is published by a certain guild or a certain tribe or a certain person in a certain place, it doesn't qualify as personality is wrong. Like just 
blatantly wrong. And the fact that, you know, something is measured and called personality, it's somehow fixed and doesn't changing, that's wrong too. <laughs> and so you, and it's really frustrating to sit here and watch both sides because when I go and present data, I'll do things like, oh, here, we have this new intervention study showing that you can increase conscientiousness. By the way, we have that. It's under review right now. And a reaction I get from some people is like, well, that means personality doesn't exist, right? I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, uh, no, it means you can change it. It's like, it's still there, but you can change it. And it's like, no, by definition, personality is unchanging, right? It's like, no, that's not the definition. And then you get something like self-control and it's like, okay, here I have this completely unique thing and it's going to be changeable because I, I published it and not some personality psychologist and it is not changeable. <laughs> I mean, not in the sense like, you know, I'm going to transform your self-control scale tomorrow through some type of manipulation that will push it around so easily. It's just like a personality measure. It can change, but it's not going to push around easy. Um, well, I should I should back off that a little bit because one thing you guys don't know is the research coming down the pipeline on on the changeability of personality. So, personality measures seem to be very similar to every other type of measure when it comes to interventions. So, they change just about the same. Everything seems to be the same. Damn it! I want to hear you just mentioned this in, under review or in press mm -hmm. paper. Are you telling me you have a paper that has? You have some intervention that increases consciousness. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yes. Tell me about that. That is no, fascinating. No, two. Um, one's under review, and it's it's Matthias Alaman from uh, Zurich, uh, who's a brilliant researcher, does um, wonderful lifespan uh, research. He was mostly known for his work on forgiveness, or forgiveness, I think, um, depending on who you talk to. Um, but he also does like really cool longitudinal developmental work, um, and uh, he has created uh, a series of apps that you can use to change your personality, to change your big five. And on one of them, um, he created a program where you could try to change your conscientiousness or your openness. And so you select which one you want to do. It's an open label intervention. And then you are given basically, you know, a standard set of cognitive behavioral tasks that each day you implement. So it's totally riffing off of implementation intentions and all the work from social cognitive psych and CBT work for the cognitive behavioral therapist from clinical psychology saying, okay, if you want to change something, you convince people of the importance of it, you motivate them to do so, you provide them with daily practice, and you try to change their perspective on the changeability of it and where it's going to go. And then you do that over weeks, or, yeah, right? And two weeks of intervention and self-report show an increase on self on you know the specific facet of conscientiousness we are working on. Uh, and you even get observers who see the same thing. And so, yeah, uh, we have a, an intervention study. That's super yeah. cool. How, how how long after the intervention did you guys um, look? Not long. So just a few weeks. Um, so like in the, in the, we did a meta-analysis in 2017 where we looked at the, the effects of clinical interventions on personality trait change. There you seem to see, you know, lasting effects. I'm still not convinced of that personally. Um, but nonetheless, if you look at the 50 some odd studies in clinical psychology that had followed up past six months or a year at the termination of therapy, whether people had maintained the changes, they maintain the changes. So there seems to be at least uh, some provocative but less than definitive evidence that personality traits change just like other constructs and when changed, remain changed. Cool. And the and the, the secret sauce, at least the guys that you, uh, the one that you use was implementation. Intensive. Well, everything is CBT, we have which is behaviorism. We really don't have any creative ideas, despite I mean, I'm going to potentially piss off most of the clinicians, but we really don't. Right. 
when it comes to change, we have Sage on the stage. I'm going to tell you what to do differently. We know that doesn't work very well, um, or it would, but it's not going to be inconsequential. But or you have CBT type things, right? Change the way people think about something, change their expectations, uh, work on them with their behaviors, motivate them to change their behaviors, get them to change their behaviors, practice the behaviors, reward them for the practice of the behaviors, uh, try to get them to, to hit goals in terms of the change of behaviors over time, work with them to do so. Critical feature of that is that you have a person working with them that thinks they're cool and respects them, right? A therapist, a coach, a mentor, somebody like that. And that is the model of change that seems to be ubiquitous. It doesn't matter. You know, people will call it different things or come up with their different flavor, but those seem to be the key ingredients for change. We haven't, and that's not much past what we did back in the seventies and eighties. Um, so, and it just, and it seems to work. <laughs> so now the curious question is, you know, does it last? And I'm not convinced that we have the evidence for that, but nonetheless, um, this is getting off topic. You wanted to talk about self-control. I know. I mean, well, you're, you're talking about the improvement of a, you, a, you know, personality that relates to self-control. So this is definitely what we want to talk about. Um, but, uh, I wonder if we want to shift gears a little bit and, um, ask you about something maybe a little more provocative. Um, and, uh, so, you know, other than just being, you know, total fans of yours, uh, one of the impetus, you know, to, to get you on here uh, on the podcast was uh, a tweet thread of yours, a rant of yours at um, someone who I think we've spoken about pretty positively in the podcast, uh, at least in passing, uh, Jonathan Haidt. Um, so you had this, like, uh, intense, you know, uh, tweet thread. I called it a savage thread, I think, uh, in reference to it. But in essence, you were pushing the coddling of the American mind hypothesis. You're pushing it saying, hey, what evidence do you have of this? That, you know, if I can, uh, you know, you know, state their thesis in simple terms, their, their thesis is that, you know, parents overprotectiveness is ruining kids, essentially. That helicopter parenting has created a generation of children who are fragile, depressed and anxious, weak, who need safe spaces. Um, uh, because they think, you know, words hurt them. Um, and in a series of tweets, I think you you kind of undressed that that hypothesis. Let, let's just say I laid out the evidence that I would find convincing if you're going to make that argument. And the evidence doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, I, I think the questions I asked were fair. Uh, they didn't get an answer. Um and and I and I have absolutely no animosity towards Jonathan. I, and I, you know, trust me, I I use his material a lot when I do bother to teach undergraduates. You know, I have a whole section on political ideology, and his stuff has been a savior for me for decades. In terms of like, okay, let's think about how this works across the different spectrum. And so, I mean, it's been really really useful to understand you know how things work. And so I, I don't have any preconceived animosity towards him um, or the arguments that are made. I, I have to admit, I probably got my undies in a bunch a little bit um, because he had tweeted some at me um, about some of the other, let's say, less than charitable comments I was making about the idea that uh, screen time on computers and or cell phones or others was bad for people, um, and that they were now collecting the data and going to crowdsource. And I found that relatively patronizing uh, because he's published a book, right? You've gone out and you have laid your claim. And I, I understand the impetus to do this. There's lots of motivational, motivational reasons for going out and, and, and stating your case. And there's data uh, to, quote unquote, support the argument. 
but you know we have a responsibility as scientists to understand the quality of the data and to not overclaim what is in the data that we're looking at and in in my mind the, to make the argument that kids these days are different than kids in past generations requires that you have really good data on kids these days and kids in past generations if you look closely at his book which i've only done indirectly there's a relatively selective constraining of the period of time in which you examine how kids are these days. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. We don't have good data. I mean, I often talk to reporters about this research, you know, especially kind of stuff like whether kids are more narcissistic now. And I tell reporters, first off, this is boutique research which means there's no federal funding, there's no person or patron who's interested in it, there's no good data. We're, we're putting together what data we can find, wherever we can find it, to be able to say there's something. And nothing we have so far is definitive. So even my comments against it are unsubstantiated because we don't have any good data to, <laughs> to say that there's nothing there. He could be right. He could be totally right. But in my mind, there's this basic data that would be necessary, at least for me, if I'm going to draw the conclusion that parents these days are coddling their kids and then creating a different phenotype in kids these days, okay, I want to see the study that shows changes in parenting practices over the last three generations. Generations, by definition, 15 to 22 years. So I want to see data stretching back to the 1960s that uses the same measure of parenting, showing that suddenly now in the 2000s, parents are running around coddling their kids. It's quite possible they are. I don't know. There is no data to that effect. There might be recent anecdotes or a couple of cross-sectional studies or something from 2015 to 2019. That's not good data. And then... Of course, one thing he doesn't discuss and or think about, and I understand why he doesn't, there's absolutely no evidence that what parents do to their kids results in these types of phenotypes. If you look closely at their longitudinal and intervention research, yeah, you can get some effects. And if you look at Alan Kazin's work with extreme kids who are really problematic, you intervene with the parents, you can get something good. But in normal kids and normal parents, what's the relationship between parenting practices, the different parenting practices and personality development, which is what he's talking about? It's pretty close to zero. And if that's true, then the entire hypothesis is wrong. You're assuming that parents have this huge effect on their kids. You have no evidence to back that up. You have no evidence to back up the idea that things change over time. You have no longitudinal studies that measure coddling and whether increases in coddling. I mean, I'll just take that, right? Just give me a correlational study between coddling and these types of qualities, right? Just do that. I'd be very curious if there were those studies. But but better would be a longitudinal study where you say, okay, you know, these parents, they're, they're living through this time. They're, see, they're seeing that these other parents are helicoptering like crazy. I help helicopter my kids. We can do it in so much more ways than our parents could. And what effect does that have on their personality? I would really like to know. There are longitudinal studies that can be done. They haven't been done. They're twin studies that can be done to say, okay, is the change that's there or the co-variation between the different parenting practices and the kid's phenotype the result of genetics or not? We don't have those studies either. So my impatience with the, the argument was, you know, first I'm going to publish my book and I'm going to throw all of these parents under the bus, right? Which has entirely unintended consequences. How many parents read that book 
and then change the way they parented. For what reason and with what consequence? I mean, I think one of the first things we should do is what MDs do, right? Promise to do no harm. And yeah, a lot of people argued, Brent, you're being kind of, you know, you're being a dick. I was being an asshole. I was being uncivil and being so direct. But what if they caused unforeseen harm in countless families where parents said, oh my gosh, I'm coddling my kids. So now I'm going to have to do tough love. And they start treating their kids like shit. And that results in a kid actually being affected by their behavior. I don't know. I doubt that it's actually going to have that effect. But nonetheless, that's a possibility. They don't know. I find that irresponsible. I don't think as scientists, we have the right to extrapolate so distantly from our data to ideas that we ideologically want to support. And I understand that he wants to make arguments that are counter-normative against the liberal elite. I'm sympathetic to that at times, and I understand his position, but you got to have good data to, to back it up. And if you don't, you shouldn't say those things. It's irresponsible for us to extrapolate too far from the data that doesn't exist. And so the, there are some people who argue back to me, well, we should just argue what we have data to support. No, we, we're, we're not dumb. We, we have PhDs. We are supposed to be trusted individuals who are, are relied upon for truth, are the best approximation of truth we can find. If we're bullshitting the general public and we're saying things that don't turn out to be true, that undermines the entire edifice of what we are. And so I'm not sympathetic to the argument that, yeah, yeah, there's a couple of correlational studies that seem to show this. It's like saying, oh, I found a correlational study between not do, you know, between vaccines and autism. I mean, maybe we should pull back, right? That's exactly what you're saying when you say that. That's not right. And, and I don't know what the consequences are of the way parents change when they read these books. You know, I don't know what the consequences are of a parent saying, you need to not use your cell phone anymore because it's, you know, <laughs> melting your brain, right? Yeah, you might have, you might have undermined your kid's entire social network, which we know from other research is the most critical thing for their future and their subjective well-being when they're teenagers. And why did you do it? Because a scientist over-extrapolated from a 0.06 correlation to, you know, a crisis in parenting and or kids using cell phones. Uh, yeah, I take a little bit of offense at that. And yeah, I, I might have been more direct than I should have been, and I could have more delicate in the way I approached it. But uh, I think that it's being irresponsible, and I don't think that should be taken lightly. I am curious about the idea of the screen time specifically, which which does seem like it is kind of easier to measure, right? You can like uh, either ask people or, or or like install software like uh, on their devices. That would be a, like both that would be a cool study. Now. You should do that because they haven't done right. that yet. <laughs> so so yeah, what evidence does exist to uh, that bears one way or the other on this idea of like more screen well, time. See, that bad. was the thing. That was the other thing he was saying. It was like, okay, we're, we're accumulating the evidence for screen time and well-being. It's like, no, there have been like you know thousands of data points dedicated to this. The size of the effect is is small. It's equal to a correlation of probably 0.06. Is it statistically significant? 10,000 people? Sure. Um, one person will say, this is amazing. Look how big this is. This is a crisis. Or, or the, what was the argument that was made? That the, the a whole generation is being ruined by their screens um, based on a correlation of 0.06. Yeah. Do you want, I, I don't want to make that argument. 
Um, but some people are more than willing to do so. I have not seen a study that has deviated from that. The effect sizes seem to range from negative 0.05 to negative 0.12, um, which is, to be honest with you, not a bad effect size when it comes to a large you know, range of different factors that we consider. So it still seems to be negative. And now the question is, why? Is it because kids who are depressed are choosing to spend more time? I don't know. I think, it, I mean, it, it really, it, it harkens back for me. Sorry, I'm going to get old. When I was a, when I was a young man and I was in graduate school, there was a big controversy between number of roles you occupy and quality of roles. So there was a very simplistic sociological idea that, you know, people who do more roles are better off. And what we found when we started digging into it were, were two things. One, people with more energy and who were more well-adjusted did more things. So there was a selection effect. So no big surprise there. The other thing you found was who cares? about the number of roles. It's not the number of roles, it's the quality of the experience. Kids who are on their screens could be doing volunteer work. They could be M-Turking to earn money for their family. They could be doing almost anything, or they could be YouTubing on the worst possible site. They could be getting you know, shamed by you know, <laughs> sites that are entirely inappropriate for them to be on. The quality of the experience is the key. It's the old drunkard's search, right? It's easy to ask people, how much time do you spend on your phone? which is, is, as we've seen, an invalid question. Um, but it's hard to understand what it is they're doing while they're there. That's a, and, and it'll play out in the next 10 years. That somebody will say, oh, maybe we should look at what they're doing on their phone. And yes, if you're doing negative things on your phone, it'll have stronger relationships than negative things that you say about yourself. Absolutely no surprise. That's what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Um, so just just to be clear, these correlations that you're talking about, this isn't controlled for like pre-existing. In uh, some cases, it's, yeah, no, no, those are those are raw correlations. So there's just a, a nice Got study it. that was just came yeah. out where they did the longitudinal stuff, and the, the change correlations are smaller, which they always are. I mean, it's, you can't. It's harder to get bigger correlations in the change space than the ones that you get in cross-sectional space. So by definition, you're not going to get anything bigger. So yeah, and when you control things, they get smaller. And when you look at the spectrum of types of results, uh, you have situations where people are highlighting the statistically significant effects, which are anomalous. Right. The majority of the effects are not really there. So cir circling back to the, the opening concept we talked about, which is the 5-HD LPVR paper. Right. So it's the same exact thing. You, you have up front. Let's find. You know, let's grub around to find our, our p-value of, of unusual size and, and tell a story that's premature because that's how, what we're rewarded for. Right. And then we play it out over years. And then eventually we'll find out that, no, it had nothing to do with that. That if you do the research correctly, correctly meaning we actually invest time in trying to actually track exactly what kids are doing. So the kid playing Fortnite probably isn't improving himself or herself very much. The kid who's on the Khan Academy on their you know, iPad might actually be doing something good for themselves uh, by our definitions, and that has to be dealt with too, right? And when we do the right study in 10 years where we actually track these things and show, oh, it wasn't screen time, because of course in 10 years, screen time will be our ex entire existence probably. You know, it was what you do in screen time, right? So in 10 years, we'll have a study that's just like this one we just talked about at the beginning when it came to genetics, where you find out, oh, everything we talked about at that point is wrong. And that, to me, that is in a nutshell, everything that's wrong with the way we approach science now. That we're, we're much more interested in, you know, telling that really provocative story as quickly as possible without doing what, I mean, what you and I, we can talk about this right now. We know exactly the study that should be done. 
but we also know nobody's going to fund it. It's really hard. Um, it would take a lot of effort. It would take a lot of people. And that's, the, and that's exactly what happened with this last genetic study. It took a lot of people, tremendous number of, of dollars, right, that finally came together to do this. And, and they did it right. And they showed what a lot of people probably knew back in 1988, 1996, when these genetic studies started, right? So we get to say, we get to see this play out again. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it great? <laughs> Sorry. So from, uh, from, you know, this last little bit, I take it that you're optimistic about uh, the field going forward. <laughs> what do you, what? <laughs> so I'm obviously joking yeah, no, a little sorry. bit. So how, um, I mean, it, what, but, uh, so we have to, we have to just set our metric. What do you mean by optimistic? <laughs> so am I more optimistic than Well, it's funny that you're saying because... this now. I mean, you're, 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 you're essentially saying that like what played out 10, 20 years ago um, is going to play out again. So it seems like you know, well, one thesis is like, you know, we haven't learned much. We're, we're going to still make the same mistakes we did, or at least, you know, some of us, a subset of us will, will make the same mistakes we did. And really, we're not really progressing much. So is that fair? Do you think that's fair about, you know, overall, you know, in terms of the progress we're made or lack of progress we've made in psychology? Like, I think we've made more progress than I could have ever imagined. I mean, Having lived through and seen the prior efforts and taught the prior efforts, right? I used to, I taught Cohen, you know, here's the 62 paper. Oh, you know, we don't have any adequate power in anything we do. Oh, 1989, we still don't have adequate power in anything we do. Yeah, 1996, no power. 2010, we still don't have power. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, you can see these things playing out. You see all these people at various times say the same thing over and over again, like, hey, we really need to do this differently and better. And the prevailing incentive structure rails against it and snuffs it out, right? Compared to those situations in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, we are profoundly successful. I mean, it's amazing what the, especially the young people have done in this generation. I'm so, so jazzed by the efforts and the energy and the changes that have that have occurred. On that front, I am eternally grateful and optimistic that by the time I retire, by the time I die, the field might be different. It may not. It, it, may, it really may not. The real question is, you know, do they have a beachfront? Do they have a foothold that's big enough and adequate enough to change the way we approach our science. And, you know, this idea of screen time or coddling is a perfect example. As long as we run a system where the incentive structure says you get a job at one of the top universities in the world by saying something extreme and saying something that's not substantiated, as opposed to doing the research well, which we all know how to do now, then I'm a little less optimistic and I'm a little less hopeful. Do you think uh, so? You, you do you think we do have a beachfront? Do you, I mean, do you think a beachhead? Do you think beach that sorry. by the time sorry. you retire, back, back in my <laughs> back in my California days, a beachfront. I hope by the time you retire, you have a beachfront. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think i mean or do you think it'll happen i mean i i, I think that's that's the i i'm actually optimistic about it but i wonder what yeah what, what I, you I, it's the question of our generation i mean it really is 
and I and and I'd like to say I'm optimistic about that, but uh, you know the reality is, if, and you don't have to go far. I'll do anecdote, like just being at home, like in my department. How many of the colleagues that I have at the University of Illinois understand, hear, uh, contemplate, and or implement any of the ideas put forward by the open science movement and or reproducibility? Yeah, we're known as being a place where it's actually supported, right? It's supported by three people, me, Chris Fraley and Dan Simons, right? And some of the younger people, the younger people are actually kind of on board. It's great. It's awesome. You know, there's some change there. But the senior folks, the the full professors, no, so whole fields, right? that don't think it's their issue, clinical psychology. I know Jennifer Tack is working really hard, but yeah, most of my clinical colleagues, yeah, they don't think about it. The, the neuroscience folks who are running around doing brain imaging, they'll look at you and say, you're telling me I need 300 people? No, I can't do that. I can only do 50 at most. And it's like, okay, by definition, you're mining noise then for the next generation. Now, it is wonderful work going on there. Russ Baldrack and other people are trying to leverage things. So things are improving and there's hope. But day to day, person to person, the incentive structure wins out. And the incentive structure says publish in high status journals with impact factors. And those journals are still run by, let's say, chronologically challenged individuals like myself who say, I want to see innovation. I want to see something provocative. I want to see something exciting. And you're telling the young people right now, you need to fight against that. That's a really difficult thing. I mean, you're putting the young people in a tremendously difficult situation. And that's unfair, patently. Will they overcome that? God, I hope they do. I really hope they do. And I'll do everything in my power for the next, for the rest of my career to make sure that at least it's possible. Can we ignore the older people? No, no I mean, because so, they're the power you know, structure. So, they're the ones who are in charge of the major journals. They're the ones in charge of the publication boards. They're the ones in charge of our careers. They're the ones on the NIH, uh, not the review panels, but the councils, right? They're the ones deciding on whether you get the grant in the end, right? And so, you know, so they're still the power structure. They're the ones who are at the major high status institutions across the United States, at least, right? Europe seems to be doing a little bit better. But, you know, I'm really curious about that crowdsourced study to show what the open science correlations with status of, of universities are like. Um, I'm looking forward to the results. Um, but at least from my perspective, you know, as you go up in age, you get people who are at most quiet and silent. Um, at worst, they're still saying things like, ah, yeah, just do whatever you need to do. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a, you know, a cosmetic pre-registration that we don't need to listen to. And that'll satisfy these crazy people who are extremists. Right. And, you know, if, and so what we're in is a situation where we have to wait for the old people to retire. And the young people, what are we going to do? We're going to burn through how many generations of young people who are actually quite talented, quite capable. The, the, the practice of science and psychology is not that hard. I'm sorry. It's not. It's really hard if you have to dig p-values out of things. But uh, doing a study, doing an experiment, doing a well-designed study, not that hard. Finding one that hits, by the definition of an old person, that's hard. But investigating things in a way that's like sound, investigating screen time, we can design that study. You and I could sit down and design that study right now. 
and we could implement it if we had the resources to do so. We won't have the resources to do so, and when we get the null result, we won't get it published in the top journal like PNAS because they'll say, eh, the results aren't that exciting. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a great point. Um, I have a student who came from biology. He did his MA um, in environmental toxicology. Oh, actually, the guy who brought the rum, <laughs> right? And his his um, master's study, I wouldn't say it wasn't hard, but it was hard in a different way, which is just that it was really tedious. Right. <laughs> like he gave these bumblebees this, uh, you know, toxin or not, and then he put them through a maze type thing, and then he had to see how did they do at the maze. And it's just like, you know, theoretically not difficult. Or right. in, like in design terms, not difficult, but it's just like you have to fucking sit there and watch right. all these bees right. like takes forever. Right. So that's the sense in which it's hard is that there's just like a lot more like just work, right. just kind of like grunt work right. involved in actually collecting reliable right. observations. And, and, and if you're sitting next to somebody who's cranking out JPSP after JPSP because they're p-hacking their way through data, they're getting the job. You're not. They're getting yep. tenure. You're yep. not. Yep. Yep, exactly. And, you know, like the degree to which we value theoretical innovation, like it, it just makes that other stuff look boring, right? right? Like, ah, uh, so uncreative, right. just like collected some reliable right. data. And, and you see that you know, day in and day out in reviews and papers. It's like, oh, you know, this isn't very exciting. We'll put this back in a, in a lower tier journal because it's not making a theoretical innovation. You know, they're not very interesting. They're not being very creative work. You know, you sit on, on search committees and you hear these statements made. Oh, you know, they're a hard worker, but they're not really very interesting. They're not doing innovative stuff. And, and we'd really like somebody who's going to be cutting edge. It's like, sorry. I mean, you know, we, if there's anything that's that's ruined our field is this perverse desire to find the the next innovative thing. I mean, humans are humans, right? We've been studying them for for hundreds of years. Haven't we mined the vein of innovation like a long time ago? And we're still calling upon people to find something creative, innovative, and new. And you know, we started with Freud. Freud was very innovative. <laughs> And 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 he was very interesting. I really love teaching him because he's very compelling to, to students, but he was wrong in a lot of places, right in others. I mean, damn, there's enough denial around nowadays that you can't <laughs> deny that he was right with those. But, you know, um, so, I mean, we should be able to approach the idea of human nature and understanding of it in a, a relatively straightforward fashion. But we don't afford people that opportunity. We say, look, you need to come up with a new, amazing insight into human nature. And what we don't have is just like a reliable take on human nature, right? Just like, you right. know, simple questions like what can parents actually do to help their kids be more self-controlled? I asked that, I posed that question on, on, on Twitter and it was rather depressing because there weren't a lot of really good answers, right? So I want to push back a little bit. Okay. So Brent, I think you and I are both editors at Psychological yes, Science. Are. Um Widely considered one of the best journals in the field. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, because, you know, we, you know, uh, I guess pick supposedly innovative, theoretically moving, groundbreaking studies. But you're an editor there and you just, you just said how you don't value that. I'm an editor there and I'm not, I don't think I'm as extreme as you are, but I also value hey, 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 good Hey, don't science. get me wrong, man. If I find something that's innovative, I'm totally for it. So having been an editor at, at other journals and having imposed similar, let's say, types of policies, 
I can say that once I quit, the policies went away. And the issue that you have to deal with is, yes, you and I are now currently editors at Psych Science. You and I are screening studies for a certain way. I am confident that if somebody bothers to go through the, the studies, which I am now on, saying I was the editor, that a fair number of our colleagues would say, God, those are the worst studies. Boring, straightforward, not innovative, right? And then when I leave, which I hope to do at the end of this year, who's going to take over? Who's going to replace me and do the same thing? Probabilistically speaking, no one. Because most of our colleagues don't share these values, period. And I mean, you know that. Like the majority of our colleagues don't. Majority of our colleagues are working hard, trying to get tenure, trying to get promoted, trying to be successful. And the incentive structure is saying, be innovative, be creative, find those p-values of unusual size, say something provocative that people find appealing that will be put into the New York Times. And yeah, I don't see a lot of my older peers, uh, let's say, walking the walk when it comes to doing science and in a relatively straightforward and simple way. And I don't see a lot of the peers in psych science, and I don't see a lot of people in the pipeline who could do that. And I see a power structure that's you know, structured against that. I'm more hopeful now, comparatively speaking to others, but it's still a, there's still a long and tough road. And I say that having been aware of this since 2011 and having made like really what I thought were, I was so naive, Jesus, when I first started, like in 2011, 2012, we started blogging and I was like, hey guys, all you need to do, triple your sample size and, and report your effect size and directly replicate. We, I thought this was like totally non-controversial. This is nothing. It's not at all complex. And the pushback was profound. Very, very dear friends who are highly respected colleagues in the field were like, nope, we can't do that. It's like, whoa, really? You, you can't just double your sample size? You can't just, like, instead of doing eight studies at JPSP, do four and replicate each of them? You know, that's, that's not possible? Really? You're telling me that's that's outside the bounds of reason? No, it's totally reasonable, but it's totally contrary to the incentive structure we have. And you know, you don't fuck with people's incentive structures, right? That's what puts food on the table, whiskey in the glass, tenure in the status structure, right? And you know, the, my naivete was like, hey, this is really simple. We should be able to do that. And what I really didn't understand was you were really screwing with people's lives. And those people don't want to change. And I totally understand that, <laughs> you know, it's really hard to change in that kind of context um, because your entire incentive structure says this is the way you should do things. And, and well, all right. Inspiring <laughs> stuff. And um, <laughs> can it go? <laughs> gave Mickey the last of the rum, but I feel like I got to. Am I depressing you stronger now? Than this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just going to go cry in the corner. Um, so I'm, I'm mindful of um, that. We've taken a lot of your time already and we are obviously so appreciative of that. No, really, Brent, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we've taken a lot of it and uh, I think our listeners will, will appreciate all this. They will if they know it's good for them. The little fuckers.